Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 44 of the podcast, the topic is the future of open finance. Our guest is Amrit Kumar, president and co-founder of Zilliqa, the blockchain platform. In this conversation, we talk about bridging the worlds of legacy finance and blockchain, scaling blockchain protocols with sharding, security trade-offs, holding community and operational funds by staking, emerging startups, and divergent regulatory paths around the world. A quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talents from thousands of experts. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Amrit, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Um, I was going to ask you, how's the, how's the weather in London? The weather in London is surprisingly nice. Uh, you know, it's sunny. Uh, you know, we are enjoying the last few days of uh, British uh, summer or uh, let's say early autumn. So it's, it's really nice here right now. I love it. I love it. Amrit, you're on the show because uh, you have a lot of exciting experiences around blockchain. And, and we're, we're going to talk about uh, decentralized finance, uh, open finance, a lot of different things that are that are happening in the space. You're the, the co-founder of Zilliqa. Um, you've been working on cryptography and security for, for a long time. I know you you got your PhD in, in France in the back in the in the Alps in Grenoble. That's that's exciting. Um, uh, but then you also have a master's degree, I, I believe, from uh, from the uh, Ecole Nationale, uh, also in Grenoble. So you got a lot of your education over there in in Grenoble. What I'm curious about, Amrit, is you know when you think about your education and what you're doing now, it seems like it's all sort of lined up to sort of cryptography and security. How did you end up applying that uh, to blockchain? Right. So um, kind of the story starts back in when I was in India. Uh, pursuing my undergrad. So I was doing undergrad in uh, mathematics. And this is where I got introduced. So I, I happened to do an internship with a professor in India at an institute called uh, Indian Statistical Institute, which has one of the best, uh, I would say, cryptography team there. And this was the first time, I think it was probably second year of my undergrad, this was the first time when I got introduced into cryptography, you know, the, the very basics like RSA and AES and so on. Uh, but again, you know, at that point of time, I didn't have the mathematical sort of uh, grounding to be able to go further deep. But uh, that interest sort of, sort of stayed inside me. And then uh, after finishing my bachelor's, I went into went to do engineering in Paris. Uh, and this is where, uh, when I was studying at Ecole Polytechnique, which is one of the best universities, I would say, for mathematics, physics, and, and all aspects of science in some sense. And uh, then I continued with cryptography, security, and privacy. And while I was doing my PhD, uh, and again, my PhD was again in security and sort of applied cryptography. And this is where I started to look into what data structures uh, and how data structures are actually used in software systems that are used for security and privacy. For example, uh, antivirus software, uh, softwares that are used to detect phishing websites. And some of these web, you know, tools and softwares actually use specific data structures. And uh, this somehow led me to blockchains because in some sense, you could say that 
blockchain is a distributed data, data structure uh, with restricted access to and how you can manipulate and how you can uh, how that data structure is maintained. So I would say that's sort of the connection that put me uh, intrigued me towards blockchains. And so while I was doing my so I would say I'm in my final years of my PhD, I knew that I was going to do something around blockchains. Uh, so I started to look into who are the people who work in this place, in this domain. And um, I went over to Singapore to work with a professor called Pratik Saxena, who was back at uh, National University of Singapore. And he had done a quite a bit of research into uh, blockchains with some of his PhD students, uh, including scalability. Uh, but when I reached out to him, he basically said, yeah, you know, it's interesting blockchains, but there are not many open problems uh, left. Interesting open problems left. Uh, <laughs> really? So, yeah, I was I was a bit disappointed uh, back then. Uh, um, but even then, you know, I went there anyway, and I started to look into, uh, into blockchains nonetheless. And uh, it was around... Around that time, that Dash, Monero, and Zcash were sort of becoming popular from a privacy perspective. And uh, so I said to my advisor, uh, would you mind if I take a look at this? And he said, yeah, sure, let's, let's, let's dig into this and see how these sort of privacy-preserving or privacy-providing or enhancing blockchains uh, serve in practice. And this is how I got into blockchain. So my first sort of, uh, sort of education in blockchain came through Monero. So first, I understood what, how Monero works, and then went back to understand how Bitcoin worked, and then Ethereum, and so on. And now, you know, as as you mentioned, uh, we are working on this protocol Zilliqa for scalability. But I'm curious a little bit about this privacy angle. I mean, a lot of people would say that privacy is a big feature uh, that interests them. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of what what the uh, promise of of blockchain is. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, a lot of authorities are are upset about the same thing. So it's this dichotomy. There's some privacy-preserving elements. There's also a public uh, element of, of the blockchain itself in that you're disclosing that and there's a transparency to it. How do you now see going forward, uh, just to pick this privacy aspect for, for a second, how important is that privacy aspect going to be uh, in order to distinguish blockchain from traditional finance? I would say it's going to be very, very important um, because again, you, you mentioned about this sort of opposite sides of the same thing. You know, some people want uh, privacy, others don't. But the fact is, you know, the same could be argued about people when people were designing encryption schemes. Uh, many government agencies were very skeptical about uh, end users like you and me being able to, to use uh you know, encryptions and then encryption schemes and be able to, to, to make use of that for nefarious activities. But the fact is that today, right now, if you didn't have RSA, if you don't have ECC, none of the banking infrastructure that you see today would be able, ever be able to run. And so I would say that it's, it's, it's those encryption schemes which has empowered a completely new generation of apps that you see right now on the web. And including blockchains, you know, blockchains, it's not necessarily encryption that you see in blockchains, but some of the primitives that were developed uh, for those purposes have actually gone into uh, blockchains as well. And the difference that you see uh, with in blockchains and traditional finance is that a lot of things that you do on blockchains are publicly visible to anyone. Right. And that's kind of the distinguishing factor. So, for example, when you interact with banks, only bank knows how much balance you have in your bank account. But right now, uh, it's very possible 
to check your tweet that you make on your on your Twitter account and check what sort of activity happened on blockchain, be able to correlate that and say that you have $1 million in your, in your, in your account address. And, and this, this sort of activity on blockchain, because of the public nature of it, makes it even more sort of important that you ensure that privacy is uh, you know, provided for people who transact on blockchains uh, in a public manner. Um, just peeling back the onion a little bit on kind of trust and blockchain, because one of the identified issues, I guess, with blockchain is, you know, it could work as well as you want it to from a technical standpoint, but you still have to convince in every uh, jurisdiction. So in every national jurisdiction, you have to convince policymakers that this isn't furthering nefarious activity, or even if it is, it's the benefits are outweighed by you know all of the markets that it opens and the new kind of money coming in and the new transactions that it facilitates how has your experience been there um uh, you know before we sort of get into the details around zilica but you know you've operated uh, and you are operating in a global context you're currently living in london but you've spent your time in france you know in your education and you are from india and i'm sure zilica you know, has a global perspective on things. How how do you think about the regulatory aspect of, of this technology at this very moment? Right now, I would say that some countries are are sort of uh, waiting and trying to see. Some 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 probably jurisdictions don't even understand what's going on in this in this space because it's moving so fast. Uh, every other day, you're seeing a new sort of paradigm that challenges uh, centralized uh, infrastructures and centralized finance. So it's, it's, it's taking a lot of time for these uh, lawmakers to, to even understand what's going on. And those who actually understand, it's taking even longer for them to, to adapt and formulate a strategy on how to regulate uh, these, you know, these you know, software systems. You know, for example, you have, you're seeing DAO-like infrastructures coming up where you don't even have sort of a company established. So now companies are being dissolved and DAOs are being set up. How do you govern? Can you explain just for the benefit of my listeners? Uh, I mean, some of them are very well versed in this topic, others not. W what is a DAO like structure? So, DAO is uh, short for decentralized autonomous organization. So, it's, it's an entity that is, for example, holding funds uh, in a contract. And that fund can be used for different activities. For example, it could be to pay salary to some people, it could be, for example, used to invest in other projects get returns from that project investment, and then redistribute uh, in sort of dividends to the potential investors who had initially invested in that DAO. So it could, it could take different shape. Uh, it could even be, for example, a governance DAO where you could have uh, certain people holding certain rights and participating in the DAO to govern and decide and vote on certain aspects of, of the system. So, uh, and, and this, this, this was sort of, it, it, it was existent probably a year ago, but it was not that prevalent in some sense. So I would say that uh, governments are sort of doing a catch-up game and, and things are moving so fast that you have to keep on uh, moving fast and fast to be able to understand what's going on in this space. In, especially in terms of privacy, I would say that uh, obviously the government is on the back foot right now because our jurisdictions are sort of difficult. It's, it's very difficult for them to understand what's going on. They are trying to uh, push, uh, in some cases, uh, design of protocols and, and in schemes where you have some sort of a some sort of backdoor design where, I won't call it a proper backdoor, but it's more like you have a mechanism where uh, a certain party, if it wants to be able to, to sort of de-anonymize 
the transaction details. And some designs do exist where, for example, you are able to... So there are protocols and primitives where you can completely uh, hide the fact that who is sending this transaction and who is and who is this transaction meant to go to. Hmm. While if you have a certain key, a secret key, then you'll be able to understand where this, be able to link uh, the sender and the recipient. So there are different sort of protocols exist that, which do exist that uh, governments could make use of. But I would say that it's it's we are at a stage where uh, the lawmakers uh, are still trying to understand what's going on in this space and be able to. But yeah, generally speaking, for example, some exchanges are not, for example, centralized exchanges, for example, are not allowing trading of certain privacy preserving or privacy enhancing cryptocurrencies like Monero and Zcash, uh, just because they, they are not sure uh, when the crackdown may happen uh, if they start trading uh, those those assets. So, uh, but I would say that it will take at least five or six years for for the lawmakers to form an opinion on what's going on in this space. Well, that's interesting. So, usually, right, experimentation and innovation is is very positive for for any space because it brings new things into the market. But you you sort of have a balanced view on this, right? So, tell me more about what the responsibility or the wise thing to do, I guess, for for businesses in this sector right now. Is it to maximize experimentation or is it to balance experimentation with, I guess, communicating with lawmakers and others in the market, uh, traditional finance actors, I guess, you know, what's going on and, and actually slows things down. So what's the balance between kind of wild experimentation in the, you know, in your teenage, uh, you know, quarters that could potentially, you know, usher us into something completely new versus the responsibility of kind of slowing things down and explaining what's going on before everything, like you said, uh, because inadvertently, based on yes. fear or or whatever, governments will crack down, and we have seen this before. Yeah, so I would say that this, uh, what I call the responsible experiment is something that's what's needed from our side. Uh, we are, we are, we have seen in the last few months where people are experimenting without any check. Uh, we are deploying contracts. We are deploying decentralized financial applications uh, with, for people to interact with, with no absolutely no checks on how much funds uh, these contracts may handle, how many users that they, these uh, contracts may handle, and yet we call them experiments. I feel that's a, that's an abuse of uh, of the term experimentation because when you do experiments, you even in the traditional sense of it, you do in controlled settings. Um, Got it. And, right. So and they're not even experiments in your mind. They, they're they're really just ira- they're, they're irresponsible uh, activity. Some of them, I would, I would say that these are these are ex- irresponsible experimentation to some sense. Uh, we have to make sure that uh, some of the contracts that are being deployed deployed right now, they're not even audited. Uh, they are developed over the weekend and then they are deployed in the wild and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of assets are getting getting logged into those, those contracts. So I would say that there is uh, definitely a room for uh, informed uh, and responsible experimentation. And, and there are many easy ways of doing it, right? One easy way would be when you deploy a contract, you start with, for example, a limit, a cap on how much money this contract can hold. And slowly and gradually sort of increase that to a certain level where people, when people are comfortable with the security and safety of this contract. You know, it strikes me that even the term smart contract is is really in need of some standardization because 
it, it promises a lot, doesn't it? Just from the word. It's like a smarter thing. But contract is a very defined word in every jurisdiction on the planet. So a contract is a known thing. So the moment you say smart, you're kind of implying there's a very high bar there to, to, to prove that it is indeed smart. Um, and I think the promise of smart contracts is wonderful, but how, how do you, I mean, do you see, is that the concept that's going to survive this in, into the legislations? What are the important concepts that the lawmakers should focus on right now in order to uh, consolidate this emerging phenomenon? Right. So the first aspect I think the lawmakers have to understand is about, or have to somehow decide on, is what's a currency? Uh, do you consider, for example, one, do you consider, for example, USDT, uh, which is basically a, a stable coin backed by fiat, USD, as a currency? Because any of these experimentations that we're doing around smart contracts and, and assets and so on have a basic layer that there's something that's called a currency, and you're using that currency, or so-called currency. And you're using that so-called currency to be able to derive and build derivative products. And when, from where things start to blow up. So the basic understanding is to first figure out whether uh, Bitcoin can be called a currency, whether Ether can be called a proper currency. Can you call uh, USDT as a currency? Even though uh, you could, you know, there's always a debate going on whether uh, USDT has uh, the right treasury behind the scenes or not. Are, are they actually backed by 100% backed by fiat or not. And when it's not, then suddenly some, something, at some point of time, things are going to collapse. Uh, so, so one aspect is obviously to understand what are the basic, how do you categorize some of these assets? Because some assets, yeah. not all assets are same. For example, an, a fungible token asset is not the same as a non-fungible token asset. But very soon you would you'd be able to see, for example, that uh, you would be able to use NFT assets even as a collateral in a lending borrowing protocol, for example. So uh, I think the first and foremost would be to be able to characterize these assets into different groups and say, okay, this asset is a bit different from this one. And because of that, we will have different re regulations for this. And some countries are actually trying to attempt to that. Uh, for example, um, at least in Singapore, if I'm not wrong, they don't treat BTC in the same way as USDT. Uh, they don't treat B BTC in the same way as Ripple's uh, XRP, for example. Uh, because uh, XRP, for example, it's, it's, it's not traditionally mined like BTC, uh, you know, the company basically issues those tokens. So the way yeah. uh, the supply is being controlled, the way those tokens are, can be used, sort of will define how you characterize those assets in different, different categories. Hmm. So I would say that would be the first step uh, before, before we go any, any further on uh, how to you know, restrict some of those things or how to allow certain activities uh, with certain checks or not. What are some of the other current roadblocks? Uh, because I know that you believe that uh, decentralized finance, which I guess we've been sort of circulating around that term a little bit, uh, th they need a, a certain amount of stability in order to, to, to really take off. What are some of the other current roadblocks that you are ac actively kind of working on trying to get out of the way? Yeah, there's, there's another aspect into which we talked a little bit earlier about is about bridging the gap between... Uh, the centralized finance, the traditional centralized finance that we see today, like, like investment banks um, and, and regular banks. And then you have uh, this decentralized finance like Aave, where you can lend and borrow assets. And there's still a, these, these sort of two entities are sort of sitting on different islands. For example, uh, when you get uh, USDT or USDC, which is the stablecoin asset, when you get hold of those assets, you don't want to get rid of them. 
Because the reason is the moment you get rid of them and get into fiat, it's very difficult to get, get back into the system uh, through fiat. Yeah. And, and therefore, the moment you get in, you kind of are stuck in this, in this, on this island. And the same on the other, way, other side, right? When you are in the fiat world, it's very difficult from you to go back, to come, to come out from the fiat world and go to, go to uh, this decentralized world. There are uh, you know, fiat on-ramp and off-ramp solutions, but they're not quite there yet. They have improved over the last one or two years, but they're not quite there yet. And that's why you still see these sort of two islands uh, living separately. Uh, in some sense. And then obviously, uh, the other key difference is, and I think this is where improvement has to be made, is that this whole DeFi space is still uh, very crypto-native friendly. Uh, you know, if you ask uh, a regular person walking down the street and say, okay, would you like to come and use one of those assets uh, that's uh, or do yield farming the way uh, the most popular buzzword right now, uh, it's not going to be so straightforward. Uh, at least uh, for for newcomer to get involved in this the blockchain world, it, it sort of reminds me, Amrit, of kind of the old days of of email and programming, where you know we were sitting in basements uh, with a lot of pizza and the proverbial you know Coca Cola and stuff and uh, you know uh, unwashed T shirts and 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 you know living this uh, this new world, and people just had no idea, right? This is when, you know, if you have a, had access to computers in those days, you were either at a university and then, you, you know, you typically would just hand off your uh, punch cards or something to a centralized unit and you wouldn't really see what, what was happening. And it was in those first few years where not, not a lot of people, you know, were on Mosaic or, you know, were really experimenting with these things. And you were viewed a little bit like, okay, that's a nice hobby and we think it might be important, but we have no idea what goes on. Exactly. You know why do you why do you sit there and what are you doing? And it did take some amount of technical skill, although surprisingly not an enormous amount. You know to kind of use these early applications and the early browsers and and you know email was never really hard. Um, it was just a text based kind of environment and stuff. How long will blockchain stay that way, uh, where we still talk about the technology as if that was the point? And, and when will the shift come when we start using the applications and don't, you know, I don't walk around talking about TCP IP just because I, you know, you and I are sitting here communicating using that protocol. I mean, it has exactly, exactly. very little relevance for our conversation today, even though without it, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Hey, you, made, you made a very good point. And this is something that I wanted to highlight as well is any technology has to go to the backend. Uh, you know, even now, right now, when we talk to other people, most of the time we talk about the protocol layer. And if if, if you want a, a lame user to be able to interact with your chain or, or your network, you should not be, be able to even see what's going on behind the scenes. And yet right now, the moment, for example, you interact with a DAP and you see the gas fees going up, you start to question, okay, what's going on? And then you start to dis discover, okay, there is a network behind the scenes, that's Ethereum, and that Ethereum is, is, is choking my transactions. So it, it's like today's uh, websites. When you when you go and visit a website, you don't see that those websites, or at least the main web page, is actually sitting on Amazon, uh, and you seamlessly interact with it, uh, and, and everything is transparent to you. You don't even see what's going on behind the scenes. And blockchain has to go to that level, which uh, I'm, I'm afraid it's it's not quite there yet. Uh, it will probably take at least four or five years for us to to reach to that level. But what I'm really uh, you know, happy with is, you know, I still remember my days when I was working as a PhD student 
And, uh, you know, my lab was uh, working on designing new password schemes, you know, uh, because they were fed up with uh, people using very, you know, simple passwords like password and, you know, this is my password and stuff like that, right? And, you know, we as researchers, we think, okay, what can we design? What sort of password mechanism we could design that could work for, uh, for, for regular people and yet be able to resist some of the attacks that you see today? And, uh, you know, we were always kind of questioning ourselves, why are people not using private key and public key? Uh, you know, that's the best sort of, uh, you, know, you know, login and authentication mechanism that you can imagine and the most secure, you know, obviously. But right now, if you see today, things have changed. Uh, all these dApps that you see today, the decentralized applications that are sitting on all these uh, blockchains, they don't use passwords. Uh, and what they're using is, is basically a, a, an authentication mechanism uh, based on public and private key. So you, you sign using your, your, um, your, your private key and then you're able to interact with that, with that application. If you want to withdraw your funds from a contract that's, that is holding your funds, you, you send that transaction through your, uh, through your private key. You don't do, do it through your passwords. So in some sense, things have changed. Maybe not for everyone, uh, maybe not for my mother, for my grandmother, who still continues to use uh, passwords. Uh, but uh, for a big chunk of at least the crypto native users, uh, they are half of the time probably they are interacting with dApps which do not require any password at all. So right. things have definitely moved in a good direction. It will take another, I would say, four or five years where we reach to a point where you won't see uh, gas fees bothering you, you won't see or discussions about how to scale blockchains. Uh, you won't see discussions about what to build uh, with layer two protocols. Uh, but yeah, I mean, things are moving in the right direction for sure. Let's uh, let's let's dig deep here. So with Zilliqa, I know that two things, and these are again fairly technical concepts, uh, although maybe they can be explained in an easy way. Sharding and staking are two <laughs> pretty deep blockchain concepts at the moment, but I know you're deeply uh, engaged in it, and you you believe that the, the, there's work to be done there. Give give, give us first uh, a little bit on what sharding is and what what you're doing currently with Zilka to try to um, use that concept. Sure. So um, so sharding basically is is a technology or is an idea to scale blockchains, uh, and not generally just scale blockchains, but you could actually scale any volume of transactions that may come in. So imagine, for example, you have, you know, very simply put, imagine, for example, you have five people uh, who are supposed to do certain tasks. And um, so the way uh, the blockchain world networks, the way it works today is that you send your transaction to these four people and each four of them will actually validate your transaction. So each one of four of them will check whether your transaction has the right amount and that the sender, which is you, has the right uh, amount of funds and that the signature is valid and that you're not trying to do double spend. So a bunch of these checks are done and each one of those five or six people who are validating those transactions will do that individually. And then we'll reach a conclusion that this transaction is valid and can be uh, aggregated and put that in our ledger and regular record. So it's very secure uh, because a lot of people are, are validating your single transaction. It's very decentralized. Uh, because even if one of one or two or three of these people go down, you still have a few people uh, processing your transaction. But it's also very redundant uh, in the sense that imagine you are now you have a network of 10,000 people doing the same processing, uh, validating a transaction that's worth $1. Uh, is it, is mm -hmm. it worth, worth engaging uh, 
resources, energy, manpower, uh, electricity to be able to process that? And the answer is probably no. And so the idea is to be able to do this, employ this idea of divide and conquer. So instead of, for example, having 10,000 people or 10,000 nodes in the network, which is basically the equivalent of in this in this computer world, um, you what you do is you divide that into smaller groups. So you could have 10 groups, each containing 1,000 nodes. So you, in total, you will have 10,000 uh, node network. And these individual nodes, individual group will be called shards. And what they will do is they will basically process only subset of the transactions. So if you have 10,000 transactions, only a chunk of them will go to the first shard, first group of 1,000 people. The second chunk will go to the second one and so on. So basically what you're doing, try to do, is to be able to divide your task and then conquer it by running them in parallel. And these individuals... Can you just tasks. explain, it, it, you know, the, that's the other thing I think for a lot of people just is really hard to understand. Why is there such an immense computer computing power needed to process these transactions. I mean, is that purely tied to this idea of security where, where everything is sort of encrypted and that's where the the extra loops are, are happening? Why is it that every, you know, and, and it go, goes back, I guess, to this metaphor of being a, a miner anyway. I mean, you, there's just so much work that happens around every transaction. And, and I think to some people, this is part of their skepticism, right? Because how could something that is so, I guess, work or processing intensive be viewed as so efficient. So it's, right. a, it's an inherent paradox, I find. Right. So I, I, think, I think it's a very, very good question. So uh, the idea behind, uh, you know, what, what do you call inefficient uh, systems is, especially if you, if you consider, consider Bitcoin uh, and blockchains in general here, is that you want to build a system that's decentralized, or where you don't have a single entity saying that this transaction is valid and I can, you, you know, it should be allowed to be processed. Because imagine, for example, right now, the way you transact with your fiat. So you take your money, you put that in a bank account, and then you say, okay, bank account, please, uh, um, hey, bank, please pay Amazon for the book that I bought. Um, and uh, the right. bank handles the payment for you. Uh, now, if you try to spend the same $100 that you spent on Amazon to, I don't know, eBay, the bank would question you. Bank would say, you don't have this balance anymore. You have spent all of your balance on Amazon. And why is it able to do so? Because the bank has the global truth. Bank knows how much money you own. Yep. So it can it can do it can sort of keep an account um, accounting of, of your balance. However, in a decentralized world, you don't have such a service. You cannot rely on a single party to decide and prevent uh, some of these double spent uh, transactions. Now, so you, you will have to have a network of people doing this. Now the question is, when you have a network of people doing this, how do you make sure that uh, this sort of activity still gets detected. Then the whole thing boils down to, okay, how many honest people you have in the network? Okay, So if everyone is dishonest, so if you know that, okay, among 10,000 people that you have in the network, all of them are going to lie, then everything is going to break apart. So uh, what you have to do is you have to make, somehow bring a mechanism that forces people to be honest. And in some mechanism, for example, in Bitcoin-like mechanism, uh, you say that, okay, you, in order to be able to verify certain things, in order to be able to participate in this network, you have to do, you have to commit some resources. Because, you know, I can't trust you if you don't commit something. If you don't have your skin in the game, you, I, I can't trust you with my transaction. I can't trust you that you're honest and you would be able to maintain the health of this network. And this is where this idea of civil resistance comes in, where a node comes in and it has to prove to the network 
that it can behave honestly in some sense. And by the, the means of proving it in, in, the, in the proof of work mechanism, uh, like Bitcoin, is by doing hash work. So you do computation and you so, show that, okay, you have committed a certain number of computational resources to the system and therefore have consumed a certain you know, physical resource, which is electricity in this case. And then you have some honesty in the system. Because if you have burned certain resources, then you're not going to misbehave. And if that value... Well, how, how do you make that assumption? I mean, there could be nefarious actors that... Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just want to go deep here on this, these assumptions around honesty because I, think, I find them interesting. They're also something people can relate to because I think every community struggles with this, right? Uh, you, you, and in fact, this is how any good network or any network at all in organization is infiltrated is that uh, if you look at how you know, people have been able to cover uh, even nefarious social networks and inf infiltrate them is you, you give something in as goodwill into the system. And, you know, this is how people have written books about the mafia or, or any criminal network is that you, you're able to infiltrate because you're actually doing those quid pro quo uh, or sort of just pro bono type activities or, or even uh, conducting heinous acts sometimes as a proof of good faith. That, that you're actually a bona fide actor. H how do you control for that in right. such a system? So uh, there's one thing that we have to remember. It comes from a computer science result that says that if you have a distributed system of open no nodes and open people, and nodes can be replaced. Nodes are basically computers, machines, and you can replace that by human factors as well. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But the, there's one very powerful result in computer science that says that if you have one third of your network, more than one third, if they are malicious, uh, then it's very hard to reach consensus, uh, in practically impossible in certain conditions. And, and this is where you have to understand, you have, sort of, you have to understand that there has to be an honesty assumption. If you can't have, for example, more than a certain number of nodes which are honest in the network, then it's going to be very, very difficult to reach a global consensus on your system. So that's, that's a result uh, that uh, uh, sadly comes from, comes from, impossibility result that comes from computer science. You, you have to send me that reference. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm actually thinking about the U.S. elections right now because I think there's at least one third on each side that you know has dug down into some position that's going to be uh, really hard in order to reach any kind of consensus. Sure. So again, uh, there's a there's a very um, you know very strict definition of consensus, uh, which probably may not hold in in you know social means because social consensus may be a little bit different from uh, you know the consensus the way we define in computer science. Uh, at a very high level, it basically means that all the honest people uh, should agree on a certain result and the same result at a very, in a very simple way. That's, that's the definition of agreement and consensus. And, and this uh, very famous result uh, you know, established in the 1980s uh, um, called FLP theorem, uh, which basically says that if you don't have one third of people honest in your network, uh, then in certain conditions, uh, communication conditions, you know, because network have to communicate, under certain communication condition, uh, restrictions, then you can't reach consensus in the network. So you definitely need some honesty in the network because without that honesty, it's not going to work. Now, the, you asked me the question about why uh, the network has to be so high. It's, and this is where the idea comes in, is if, if you want to attack the system and if you only, it will, it will only take you $10 to attack the system and be nefarious, then of course everything breaks apart. And that's why in order to attack the system, your requirement must be high enough that should be very, very hard to reach. 
Yeah. And and this is where this is why you see that uh, Bitcoin miner, uh, you see that Bitcoin mining uh, burns almost I don't know electricity that's consumed by Denmark or Iceland or so on. It's because you know to attack that system you need that much energy, you know, electric electrical energy to be able to electricity to be able to spend to be able to attack that system. And 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 that's kind of the this is where security comes from. Where yes you can have nefarious people, you can have people who would like to attack. But the cost to attack the system would be so high that they won't be able to attack the system. Are you worried about the electricity demands of this network? Should it become the default financial network across the globe? I am worried about that. I am worried about, that. and that's exactly why uh, this is where the second point comes in around staking, where new mechanisms of consensus protocols are being designed uh, to replace uh, the. Energy consumption that you see with proof of work mining uh, uh, that you see in BTC and Bitcoin, and and staking, for example, is very similar. I mean, the principle is very similar. So in proof of work, you say that okay, in order to attack the system, you must have high enough uh, computational power, and in staking, right. you say that you need to have high enough stake in the system to be able to attack. And the logic is that okay, if you have high high enough stake in the system, and if you want to attack, and if you indeed attack the system then by social consensus the value of your stake will go down and therefore by sort of recursive principle you'd say that okay you won't have the have the incentive to attack the system because of your stake there so that's that's sort of similar there's, there's a similar sort of denominator common denominator in both in both sort of mechanisms but yeah it's true that uh, people are designing mechanisms which are much more efficient uh, you know in the 1980s people uh, were working on bft protocols uh, where you have to come up with a protocol where you don't have to consume resources but you have to basically keep on voting so i talk to you you talk to someone else and i talk to that person then we somehow reach agreement on uh, what should be the outcome uh, of of our you know agreement protocol for example whether we should agree on this transaction that this transaction is valid or not so there are protocols that have been that are being designed and staking for example uh, with pos proof of stake is another mechanism to to reduce that uh, Amrit, I, I got an idea. It takes us a little bit, probably, away from staking, which uh, which is, I want to come back to. But is there is um, any of these kind of consensus protocols that are being developed now in in blockchain? Are they also a way, ostensibly, to get us into uh, the territory of what we're going to do with with AI and and kind of uh, establishing consensus both among computer systems more generally and between humans and computers on a more generalized basis? Because right now we're talking about it in terms of financial transactions. But uh, this thought just hit me that, you know, we're going to be dealing with over the next decades, massive negotiations between uh, hordes of sort of independent, semi-independently acting computing power that of course are acting hopefully on behalf of some human actors, but they're also largely independent to some degree, and and they're going to have there's going to be all kinds of negotiation happening, not just about financial transactions, but about lots of other uh, delegation of work and discussing you know which machine is going to be doing this that or the other in order to coordinate very advanced perhaps industrial production or or other things that are going to happen, you know maybe on the blockchain, but I'm just saying. The governance principles are going to have to be thought out on on this in this new AI world. What are your thoughts about that? So, Is blockchain kind of a contender for this general sort of consensus mechanisms for machines? I would say so. I would say so because in the end, uh, all these consensus protocols that exist today, uh, right now, at least at the protocol le- le- level, they are being talked among or they are being 
run among computers. Now, it's very straightforward to say, okay, uh, you replace the computer and put a human there. All the human has to do has to communicate in the same protocol. So if, if the other company is expecting a yes, then you have to respond by yes. And if you can code that, again, through mechanism that the computer understands, then it's fairly easy to, to replace one human, sorry, one computer by a human and still everything would work. And you're seeing that even yeah. in protocols at the app layer as well right now, where humans are actually running consensus themselves, uh, you know, simple consensus protocols, you know, basically vote, voting mechanisms, where in the DAO that I mentioned earlier, where if let's say if you want to vote on whether uh, we should increase the block size of a blockchain by two times or not, then humans sit together and they reach consensus. And so I, we are seeing already a mix of them, not, not mix, I would say, separate uh, right now, where humans reach consensus at the application layer and machines reaching consensus on at the protocol layer. But I, I imagine it's very easy to replace that as long as you can communicate with a machine, uh, with, uh, let's say, speech technologies and other that your the AI's uh, folks are developing. That should be fairly straightforward yeah. to replace uh, machines by humans. But in terms of staking, I mean, staking is one way to uh, to solve this problem of motivation and re- but but the rewards given to people who then engage in this staking activity what are they because in in traditional governance right so staking is a solution to governance um, in Bitcoin they established a Bitcoin foundation and, and it, which is a more traditionally understood concept because a foundation is something you know it's like a nonprofit structure and you kind of understand that you're you're the shepherd of of an important activity, and you you kind of feel empowered by that. And then, you know, you're appealing to the good nature, the good parts of your human nature, I guess. And you know, let's let's steward this on behalf of the whole community. Staking doesn't seem to me as immediately understandable as a foundation structure. How, how is that? How is you, how are you going to be able to scale staking uh, again to this? audience of non-technical people? So uh, for me, staking is, you know, simply put or even at a higher level, staking is a mechanism where you put some skin in the game that allows you to have access to certain privileges. Now, those that privilege that you get access to depends on which sort of system you're interacting with. For example, in a proof-of-stake-based system, uh, when you stake, when you put your skin in the game, you're allowed to vote on the validity of certain transactions. Uh, when you put a stake in uh, a DAO, you are allowed to vote for certain governance protocols or certain governance uh, topics. Uh, when you stake that in a lending borrowing protocol, then it gives you access to loans. So it basically there, your stake acts as a collateral. Mm-hmm. So you put your stake, you put your collateral, and based on that collateral, valuation of that collateral, you'd be able to withdraw a certain uh, you know, money uh, against that collateral. So for me, it's it's a generic term that can be used in different application depending on where you where you make use of. Hmm. So for me, for example, a collateral in some sense is not so different from, for example, stake, because um, in let's say in a lending borrowing protocol, you go to you go to a lending borrowing protocol and say, okay, here's my hundred dollars uh, ether uh, that I would like to stake, and in return of that, I would like to get as a collateral, of course. Uh, that and in, in return of that, I would like to get um, uh, a loan of fifty Dai, for example, which is the stable coin that can comes along comes along with it. And you can then use that uh, in other protocols. 
And if, for example, if you're not able to return that, then your stake can get slashed. Or in other words, mm-hmm. um, if you're not able to return your 10 die that you borrowed, uh, your stake will be sort of burnt and liquidated in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, let's say, for example, today, if you go and buy, try and buy a buy a buy an apartment and you go to the bank and you say, okay, I don't have enough money. Can you give me a loan? So you get a mortgage uh, on your apartment. Uh, and if you're not able to return your loan in the right amount of time, then your apartment will basically be sold and auctioned out uh, to make sure that the bank gets the money back. So it, it, it's sort of in a similar model. Uh, and even at the protocol level, it's, it works in the same way. For example, if you misbehave, then a portion of your asset will either get seized and distributed to other people or will get destroyed uh, because you mm. misbehaved. So there are some parallels uh, in the physical world the way you see today, the traditional financial world, and the way uh, staking you see in in the blockchain world as well. So it's been a long introduction to Zilliqa, but I think maybe we're set up to now uh, perhaps understand it better. What is Zilliqa trying to do? And what what part of this large ecosystem are you uh, engaging in. I mean, I know you have a currency, you have an ER, so-called ERC-20 token, as ZIL, right? So you are in the currency game. Right. Um, tell us more about what Zilliqa is and where you're moving, uh, even more importantly, because there's been some pre-announcements of a GZIL token, which I think is related to what we've been talking about, but it's been talked about as a new asset class even uh, within kind of, again, you know, all these specialty terms, but yield farming. But but it is related to this governance token discussion that we've been having. And although we haven't been using the word token very much, what is Zilliqa and where are you heading? Yeah. So uh, I would say Zilliqa is a blockchain platform similar to Ethereum in the sense that uh, it allows people to develop and write contracts that can run on decentralized infrastructure. Um, it improves upon Ethereum in two aspects. One is scalability. So if you see right now uh, Ethereum, the number of transactions that the network can process is something between 5 to 10 on average. Got it. Uh, if you compare this with traditional uh, payment services, even the simplest one like Visa, which basically handles payments, uh, there's a huge gap between, between what blockchains uh, process today and what uh, Visa requires. Um, so that's one aspect, which is we try to improve that through the idea of sharding that we discussed earlier. Uh, the second aspect is about smart contract safety. Uh, so we have seen uh, several attacks and hacks happen on um, solidity contracts, with it, which is the Ethereum contract, uh, where hundreds and millions, uh, hundreds of, uh, and millions worth of ether was stolen or hacked uh, from contracts that were run in Ethereum. And we felt that uh, there is a way we could fix it. And one way was to be able to harden uh, the smart contract language uh, in which or the protocol writers actually write their contracts. So we designed a new language that we call Scylla, uh, short for uh, basically a, a safe, uh, integrated smart contract language that people could use to write their contracts in. And uh, so that, that's kind of the second aspect of, of, of Zilliqa. So we launched our... So it's a, la- it's a currency and it is a language and it's based on, you know, these consensus mechanisms that we've talked about before, but in a... So proof of work you, you you explained, but I don't think we went into Byzantine fault tolerance as much, but that's also the core, right? Right. So uh, the consensus mechanism of Zilliqa is a mix of Bitcoin and traditional PB, BFT protocols. Uh, so proof of work is basically, as I mentioned earlier, is about one person comes in and he says, okay, I have the most 
I have the highest computational power right now. And uh, based on that, I'm going to propose this block to you. And you all have to basically accept this. Yep. And the second model is BFT, where everyone sort of votes together and say, okay, I like this one. I, I, I feel that this is a current one, correct one. And then the entire network decides that, okay, this, uh, this transaction is valid because two-thirds of the people, a super majority of the network has decided that it's a valid transaction. So we use a mix of both these two. So proof of work to be able to, what's called for civil resistance, to be able to elect people who are going to vote on transactions. And then once they are elected, they will use BFT protocol to actually vote for transactions. So it's a competitor to Ethereum, essentially. And uh, and actually, you're playing in the same space as Tezos as well, right? Yes, yes. So we uh, Tezos, Cosmos, and a bunch of Algorand, um, a bunch of other protocols are being developed today uh, that are trying to improve upon what Bitcoin has done and what Ethereum has done in terms of one um, scalability to improve uh, the transaction throughput in terms of governance, because some protocols have realized that uh, often governance is often messy. It leads to uh, division in the community. So, uh, you know, as blockchain is all about community because the community actually gives value to the asset class. The community is the one actually which runs the network. So it's, it's very, very important. So people have realized that uh, it's important to have a governance mechanism to be able to make sure that protocol runs correctly and you update your protocol in the correct way. Hmm. And then you have some work on designing uh, better languages. Uh, for example, Zilliqa is one of them, where we felt that the smart contract language, the way it was designed for, in case of Ethereum, uh, is probably not the best and safest language out there. Mm-hmm. How, how long have you been uh, doing this and and how quickly did you get to some some amount of scale and and, and did that surprise you how i guess the the lead to my question it, it it didn't take very very long for you to to achieve a certain amount of scale which is different from many other industries where you can't just come in and say we have some smart stuff and then kind of become a an actor to contend with in in, in a fair i mean it's still it's a fairly large uh, marketplace right now, even though it's, I guess, insignificant still in the greater world of finance, right? It's less than a percent or something of transactions. We can talk about the details, but but you you came in and then fairly quickly established yourself. Was that surprising to you? Uh, I would say yes and no. Uh, and no, because I think it's a general phenomenon in uh, in the blockchain space, and this is kind of the beauty of the space is uh, if you look at the traditional world of software engineering or people developing software products, uh, your market is often very niche. Uh, you start in your, in your neighborhood and then you try to get recognized in your country, probably in your, in your city, then in your country, and then you go beyond globally. Uh, the good thing about the blockchain world is it gives you instant exposure. So it doesn't matter where you work, from your basement, from your office. Uh, the moment your project goes live, uh, it's very easy for people to notice your product. So I would say that uh, yes, we have been uh, being able. We have we have been you know, given that you are in the space, you 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 get some of the benefits that comes from the space that you get quick exposure. Having said that, there is there is competition. You know, people are developing every other day. You are seeing new products, new ideas being launched, new ideas being experimented and tested. So from that angle, our approach has been a little bit different, and that's probably why uh, we have also seen some recognition, which is uh, about. So, so, so there has been a little bit of, I would say, a gap between the blockchain world and the academic world. It's because the blockchain world, uh, you know, led by Bitcoin, was mostly a developer 
sort of driven uh, you know space and academics were initially very skeptical about it because they wanted it to see how popular it becomes um, what sort of because you don't want you're not interested in an idea that's not being used by people uh, because sure. then it's it's not of your scientific interest because when people start using it then you are interested in understanding the security and complexity of that protocol or of that idea and so uh, i think probably after two or three years when people started to use it use bitcoin even for simple transaction that uh, researchers came into kind of they, 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 that, that caught their interest and they started looking to how to improve bitcoin how to understand uh, the anonymity that bitcoin provides and so on so our approach has been somewhat from that academic angle where we said that okay if you want to develop something we have to come up with an idea that gets uh, peer reviewed by the academics so our initial starting idea was published in one of the top uh, security conferences uh, called ccs uh, even later when we published uh, when we worked on the smart contract language that also got uh, sent to a, an academic conference and got peer reviewed there as well and that's in some some sense has given us the sort of credit where we are doing something a little bit differently from other people uh, in the, in the in the crowd we started back in 2017 by the way so mid 2017 um and we were able to push uh, the first version of the zilliqa protocol in around one year and a half time so by around 2000 in 2018 we were able to show that uh, sharding actually works in practice uh, because you know publishing an academic paper is very different from pushing a production system because sure. uh, you know a lot of things that go in the papers academic papers they're still very theoretical and a lot of our sort of hand waving wavy in some sense because you say okay this is an implementation detail we're going to skip that uh, and we are going to focus on uh, how the architecture works and we're going to prove something uh, that this, this protocol will work in practice so yeah it took us around a year for us to show that uh, you can actually use sharding as a and it's it's, it's a meaningful uh technology that you could use to scale your chains and then after that we have seen a bunch of other protocols that have followed us as well uh going and trying to implement sharding as well but we are still out to say probably the first one to 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 have sharding uh, you know on the on the mainnet what what does competition mean in this space because you know in a very rapidly expanding space it sometimes i think it's strange to talk about competition because you're really competing against you're really just trying to take market share uh well one in traditional finance but also you're expanding traditional finance into new right you're bringing in new actors that weren't even transacting in the old economy uh on the other hand i i do realize that at some point there's going to be some consolidation and people uh, just because of the technical nature of it right now you can't engage on 15 different platforms you're going to tire at least the way the structure is built now maybe you know you, you guys will f- as a community develop a, a much more standardized infrastructure and you could have something akin to uh, I, i guess bank locations and maybe there could be a local kind of financial actor on every turf or in every city i don't know how you see it that that would be interesting to hear but but what do you think about competition i mean to what extent does it matter really yeah, whether yeah. there are 1 2 3 or 15 or 500 protocols yeah, going I, forward i i do agree with your with your assessment that you know competition probably not the right term uh, also because we are working in a very open sourced world so uh, in the traditional world you could say okay here's my app i have developed a very smart back end engine that does you know something very fancy to for my customers and uh, it's my it's my trade secret 
in the blockchain world doesn't work like that. So, uh, you know, you can very easily, and we ourselves as well, have taken ideas from Ethereum, and, and I'm sure that many of the protocols that have developed after us have taken ideas from us, uh, you know, looking at what we have designed. So, uh, yes, competition is probably not the right term, but yeah, I mean, if there's any competition of any sort, that's probably going to be uh, happen at the app layer, not at necessarily at the protocol layer. So basically, it's going to be about who comes up, you know, because we are still early in this in this blockchain space exploring, uh, what are the ideal and killer applications that really blockchains really helps? You know, DeFi, for example, is one of those uh, use cases. And this is where I would say that uh, market share will really matter because this is where you would say, okay, here are my, here's my platform. My platform has been able to attract, let's say, these many uh, customers who are actually daily interacting with my, with my, with my chain. But then again, even in, the, in that case where you could say, okay, here's my application. At some point of time, uh, some of these applications actually leverage the underlying asset. Uh, for example, in the lending borrowing protocol, in some of these DeFi protocols, this idea of total value locked, where you, what you basically do is you lock certain assets, so some of the Ethereum, like erc tokens, and then issue something else, or you provide some other service. Yeah. Now, what's going to happen when that saturates? So let's say when you're... When you can't lock any more assets on your chain, what's going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to jump somewhere else. So you're probably going to go for other protocols or other platforms where there are assets to be locked, where there are assets to be leveraged upon. So you're also going to see uh, protocols or dApps uh, being developed that leverage cross-chain functionality as well. Where, for example, you can take uh, one ERC-20-like asset from one chain and be able to get a stable coin on a, on a different chain and be able to use that somewhere else. And the good thing about here is about this, this interoperability and open finance, right? Where you can connect different protocols here and there uh, on different chains and be, still be able to leverage uh, the good properties of certain chains. And I think this is where probably the space is going to go. And it's already changing. Uh, we are seeing, uh, for example, BTC uh, coming to Ethereum, for example. Uh, you are seeing RAB tokens, uh, BTC tokens, being used aggressively right now in Ethereum applications. Uh, you'd be seeing uh, similar things on Cosmos and, and on Zilliq as well. So as we're moving to the next decade, wh what do you think will happen to all this? But first off, maybe if you could handle this idea of open finance, that's a new term you threw around. Open finance was around before yes, yes. Bitcoin and blockchain. Sure. So it's kind of a weird thing to... I guess, appropriate for the blockchain community, although I understand it from the open source discussion, because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of you are, uh, or we, I guess, are open source minded. So th there's this idea, but open finance has, has meant a lot of different things w way before. How, how does this idea of open finance get connected so much? Yes. And, and, you know, what is the difference really between DeFi and OpFi. Yes, I would say OpFi is 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 something that came from the traditional uh, banking industry, you know, uh, that you see around. Right, right. And, and it, uh, I think it was probably ten years old or five years old, I think, uh, or even longer. Uh, and the idea there was basically that you they saw banks, uh, insurance companies, and, and these sort of financial institutions uh, sitting siloed and were just handling data on their own. And they wanted to give one entity access to other people's data. So, for example, yeah. uh, you could log into your bank account, uh, one bank account, uh, let's say HSBC, and you could get access to your Citibank account's balance, for example. Uh, that was kind of the vision that you could achieve with, with open finance. And 
similarly, you know, mortgage providers right now, for example, mortgage providers are already connected with your with your banks. So when, for example, when you uh, when you pay your uh, mortgage uh, monthly, then you know your balance gets deducted automatically and goes to your insurance provider. But all of this, all of these could have happened more openly, and that was kind of the vision initially in the open finance space. But again, it was not related to blockchain at all. I would say that uh, the idea in, in in the blockchain world about open finance sort of it's, it's sort of new moniker in some sense, but it's the same thing in some sense. Uh, you can call it open finance, you can call it decentralized finance. They liked it because it was more a meme than anything else. Uh, but yeah, the the one benefit that it had was it was running on a decentralized infrastructure. So you wanted a, some bit of differentiation with from compared to what you were seeing in the traditional financial uh, sort of space. So in principle, uh, there is no difference uh, in the term, but yes, underlying you see that there is a blocked infrastructure being used on, on the right-hand side with deficit decentralized finance and that's why the benefits of blockchains comes into picture where you don't see that in the open finance framework hmm. uh, but that's that's a high, very high level what uh, what i would see uh, as the difference between the two two worlds when is uh, crypto going to be happening for your mother when is it coming to your grandmother i think it's slowly coming i think um, it's slowly coming because um, you're seeing some changes in the in the financial world already for example um, we have these challenger banks like Revolut and uh, 20 and, and those sort of banks coming in. And what they have proved through the world, and they've been very successful, and what they've proved to the world that banks are no longer institutions, they are software. And that has been a very powerful message. So Revolut is, is from, a, from a lame user like, like, let's say, my father, Revolut is, is an app. Uh, for for him, he doesn't have to go to a to a branch, a physical branch in the physical world, and he can do everything that he needs uh, through his app. And that's that's a very powerful sort of revolution that uh, banks are taking right now in the traditional financial world. Uh, you are seeing um, a little bit of flavor of blockchains in those applications as well. For example, through Revolut, you can go and buy Bitcoin, Ether, but it's not the same as it's a sort of custodial in some sense where you don't hold uh, custody of your assets. But still, you're seeing some of that coming to, to, to my father and my grandmother. But there's still there's a still long way to go where you'd be, my grandmother at this point of time will not be able to interact with any of the lending borrow protocol that exists on DeFi today. So uh, you know, I guess when I talk about your family, they—they're—I'm uh, assuming some of them are are, are maybe still in Asia. Uh, tell tell us in any case a little bit about how Asia differs from what Europe and and the U.S. Uh, has done in this domain. And you know, Asia is still very cash based, and certainly m- many parts of Asia. Is there a possibility to leapfrog with uh, blockchain, or is that just one of those pipe dreams that's not really possible? Yeah, Asia is very very different compared to the Western world that you see today see today. Um, even, for example, countries like Japan, which is uh, you know, one, one of the most developed countries uh, in Asia and you know, in, in the world as well, even that's very cash-based, even, even today. You know, I still remember going to Japan three, two years ago, and you still had to carry vats of cash, <laughs> cash around to be able to transact. So that, that society is still very different. And you know, not to talk of you know, countries like, let's say, Indonesia, where uh, it's naturally very cash-based. Uh, and this is where things have, no matter what you do in, in, in the blockchain world, even in the traditional finance world, it has to be adapted to that specific setting. Uh, 
uh, you can't just say, okay, we are going to change the entire, uh, we are going to move everyone who is uh, transacting with cash today and convince them to be able to use USDT or USDC tomorrow. That's not going to happen so easily. Uh, even today, for example, people who are designing remittance-based uh, remittance protocols uh, who felt that, okay, uh, if you want to remit uh, money from the UK to the US, uh, you could use one of those stable coins, which people often do right now. I'm not necessarily for remittance in mind, but uh, when I want to transfer, for example, if I have USDC or USDT, any of the stable coins, if I want to transfer that money to, to somewhere in the US, I would rather do that in, in, in the stable coin and not go through the bank account because I would, I would pay, pay, pay a hefty fee. And that's already Will happened. a stable coin is? It, I mean, th- there are people walking around who are smart and uh, and are in even a Western society that have no idea what you're talking about when you say stable coin. When will stable coins become commonplace? Do you think, in terms of you know, everybody will realize that yeah, of course, I have stable coin. Otherwise, I, I can't transact between these two systems. How long are we away from that? Because it would seem to me that it was a clever solution to come up with stable coin. Right. And it has this transaction ability, plus it is tied to a very down-to-earth notion of coins, which, you know, that's why Bitcoin is something people are slowly starting to understand because they're like, oh, okay, it's kind of a coin. <laughs> they have even printed these things, you know, as if they were coins. And then you're like, hmm, okay. So stable coin, kind of a nice metaphor. Oh, a stable coin, that, that sounds good. No, I, I think the... The main hurdle behind adopting a stablecoin or adoption of stablecoin is, is regulation, to be honest. Uh, yeah. It's about people. For example, right now, when I carry cash uh, in my account uh, it's, it's, or, or carry over, over the border, my your border agency people will, will, are going to stop you and say you cannot carry $1 million worth of cash in your pocket. Uh, right. Uh, As if that was such a massive <laughs> problem, right? <laughs> okay. But, but yeah, if you, you know, there is, there is, there has to be some. I think governments have to become a little bit more comfortable um, dealing with stable coins. And yeah. there are some, you know, jurisdictions we are okay with this. For example, even the U.S. For example, Paxos, uh, uh, and I think USDC as well to some extent, have the right authority, you know, license to be able to issue stablecoin and be able to custody or USD for that. Uh, but it's all about pushing that, uh, marketing it to people, making sure that the end user will be able to use it. And that's, again, about being able to pay using your stablecoin on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to China today, uh, hardly people use a credit card even. Uh, most of the time, you're using a QR code and scanning QR code all the time. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's because uh, you know, it's, 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 it's massively used by people. And until and unless we reach to the QR code level of adoption, uh, the way LEP has gotten adoption in China, or WeChat or VP, I think it's called, has got in China. I don't think we'd be able to see USDC or USDT or stable coins being used on a day-to-day basis. Government has to be supportive for that as well. Amrit, give me a, a give me a, a, a quick guide. So let's say uh, I live in the US. I'm willing to experiment with this idea of decentralized finance. I haven't done so before. I've heard about these discussions. I've listened to a bunch of uh, trans podcasts. Now I want to get involved and I'm prepared to put some thousands of dollars, let's call it 50,000 into some amount of decentralized finance. What are my options? Uh, how do I go about it? Who do I trust? Uh, and, and do I do it kind of gradually? You know, wh- What would you do if you were sitting you know, in Boston, such as myself, and you're going to dip your toes into this or, or you know, 
maybe you're in San Francisco, you're like, I love innovation, but I have really kind of uh, been waiting uh, around for this. I've now decided I'm going to invest $50,000 in, in this. How do I do it? Where do I put it? Right. So, um, you know, first is... Not, uh, not that you're going to give investment advice, sure, but just sure, sure. Give, us a, give us a sense of what the options are in a theoretical case. Sure. So um, the first thing is, uh, once you have a fiat, the first thing that you have to do to be able to get into this world of de- decentralized finance is to get hold of some blockchain asset. It could be Bitcoin, it could be Ethereum, it could be a stable coin, it could be anything. But you have to come into, that's your sort of entry. And how do you get hold of that? Because as you said, traditional banks don't always have custodianship over those right, assets. Right. So um, what you do is, there are many ways you could do it. One is there are dedicated uh, on-ramp providers uh, that you could access. Um, uh, there was one called MoonPay, for example, uh, which you could go to. Uh, there are a bunch you know, in the US as well. You could go to some of those uh, uh, on-chain providers, on-ramp providers, where you could use your credit card and buy BTC or, or Ether or USDC or USDT. You could also go to exchanges like uh, Coinbase, which is one of the biggest exchange uh, in the US. And from there, you can use your credit card. Uh, I think you can even use your bank account to transfer money and then get hold by one of those assets. Right. So now, so now we have solved that problem. So now you actually hold something. Yes. You hold Ethereum, you hold Zill, you, you hold something. Yes. Now, now, what do you, now what do you do? Do you yeah. then sit around and now you're holding this and you're enjoying life and just watching it go up and down? Or, or how, do you, how, how does one then take the next step? Yeah, so the first step is when, once you have gotten, gotten your some asset, um, if it's a volatile asset, then it's, in a way it's, a, it's, it's an investment in some sense. because So now you're already in the already, market, essentially. Yes, you're already yeah. in the market. So now, you're you're essentially taking risk, you're, it yeah. goes up and down, and you could pull out after a week because you got scared and it went down 10%, or it went up 1,000%, you're like, okay, this was fantastic, I'm cashing out. Yes, so that's the first step. So you, you come in, you get hold of any of the volatile assets that you have, Ether, BTC, or any of those, and then you can, yeah. you're basically in the game. If you let's yeah. say if you want to go a little bit more deeper, then you could interact with as as we may call one of those DeFi protocols, and there are many options there. For example, you can interact with uh, lending borrowing protocols. What you can do is you can take uh, your ether, and you can uh, because you're holding ether, and you say, okay, I am not making or even let's say your stablecoin, for example. You could say, okay, I'm using my stablecoin. I have my stablecoin, but I'm I'm not doing anything with it because my stablecoin doesn't move. Right. It, it is stable. By definition. So what I would like to do is I would like to lend my stablecoin to other people. So what you could do is you could go to a lending borrowing protocol uh, like Aave, for example, or Compound, for example, and you could put your uh, your asset there. And uh, these uh, these you know protocols uh, give you different interest rate depending on which asset uh, you're putting in. For example, one asset uh, may be more in demand, so the interest rate will be higher on that. Uh, other assets may be lower in demand, so the interest rate would be low, lower. So you put that uh, your asset there. You, yes, basically giving, lending your asset to people, and then the system will give you, uh, you know, returns and yield on your assets. That's another way of earning uh, assets without losing it. Uh, you know. Yeah. Then you could also, for example, borrow things from that. Um, so what you could do is uh, when you when you're sort of lending your asset, you're basically putting that as a collateral in some system. And it allows you to even um, borrow something against that, uh, the amount that you have put as collateral. So, for example, if you have put, let's say, $100 worth of Ether, then you're allowed to withdraw $40 worth of stablecoin 
uh, against that ether. So you could, for example, take now a stable coin. So even though your assets are there held, you're earning interest on that, you could still get something else to play around with. Hmm. Um, now you could take your, um, your, your DAI and you could, for example, go into a staking platform because there are many staking platforms that take uh, or staking or collateralized platforms where you can put your assets and then earn more returns. Or you could, what you could also do is you can sell your asset and then get some more ether. And you can keep on speculating on those things. Hmm. Uh, what you could also do is you can put that into an insurance pool because there are there's an option where um, you could put your ether or certain assets into, into, into an insurance pool. And through that insurance pool, you could also earn interest from that. Uh, you could also go to a liquidity provider pool. So for example, you have an exchange, a decentralized exchange called Uniswap, where which is basically an exchange. So where you can go and sell Ether and buy something else, an exchange basically swap between assets. And um, this exchange basically requires people to deposit liquidity. So you could go there and even provide liquidity and earn uh, fees from that as well. Amrit, this sounds to me like, you know, if you are an experimental person, this may be interesting. Uh, and if you and I, you know, I certainly would recommend if you're trying to learn something to actually do it instead of just reading about it. On the other hand, there must be financial advisors that actually do this, right? Because some of this actually requires some amount of technical expertise and access and passwords and this and that. It's, it's you know, and it'll take a little time also, more importantly. So yes, it's super interesting to learn about. But is there now an, a developing kind of cadre of financial professionals in the, at least in the Western world, that, that actually have this as part of their repertoire? Uh, I would say that uh, they are, given the nature of decentralized and non-custodial nature of the finance that you're seeing today, uh, most of the protocols... It sort of goes against the idea, exactly, doesn't it, right? Exactly. <laughs> like, how to help me be a centralized player playing in decentralized space, exactly, right? Exactly. It's, Having said that, having said that, there are obviously uh, VC funds. So there are funds that manage assets for you. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, yeah. it's not un, you know, unseen. Where, uh, but they mostly accept uh, very traditional assets like BTC, Ether, or, or you know, USD or USDC. So you basically, let's say if you have $1 million because you're rich, you go to uh, one of those uh, fund managers or, and you could give them your fund and they would handle everything for you behind the scenes. Uh, they will take a cut sure. and give you returns. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's against the general idea of uh, decentralized finance where you're supposed to handle your own funds and do things to yourself. But of course, the, all of this has a risk, uh, which is not to be not to be ignored. One is because uh, a lot of this relies on collateralization, and makes, which basically means that if your the assets that is being held in a contract, if that asset's value goes down, because recently, for example, Bitcoin value went down from 10k to 5k, you know. In March, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's an immensely exactly. risky asset. Then, then sure. your the whole asset that you. I mean, if you bought everything at the top of two thousand and is you know end of twenty seventeen or whatever, yeah, exactly. So the idea is always go slow. Uh, start experimenting with assets which are generally safer. Uh, when you understand the mechanics of what can happen, uh, even for example, putting simply your asset in a decentralized exchange just to provide liquidity. Even that's risky because um, let's say you put hundred dollars worth of ether in a in a in a Uniswap like contract, and after a week or month you want to get your ether back, you may not get your ether back. What you may get is another asset. Uh, so it's very possible that you may not get your hundred ether back. 
so there, there, there are risks involved in many of these protocols, and you have to be very careful what you're dealing with. Got it. All right. Lastly, my, my, my question is simply this. So let's, uh, you know, people may listen to, to me or they may listen to you, but how do you track and find trusted people and institutions uh, when you're trying to learn more? Or, or even like you pointed out earlier, so much is happening here. So even I'm assuming for you, to track all the activity around blockchain and crypto is now becoming kind of, it could be a full-time uh, endeavor. So what are some shortcuts to this? How do you yourself track what you need to track in this market and what do you recommend to me and my listeners to stay up to date and keep learning uh, so you know, apart from what we just talked about you know in practical terms of dipping your money in there but if you want to just sort of track and and maybe hear from some other people not just you and I that maybe it's an idea to to dip into this market with your money who should you I would say Where should that you look you should, for expertise? I would say that you should spend, uh, anyone who is interested in getting into the blockchain space and understanding what's going on, uh, even if you don't want to interact with any of these protocols and just want to see what's going on in the space, uh, the best place is still Twitter. Uh, sadly, it's it's not a curated place where you can see information uh, up, you know, ready to be, to be in a nice way. But still, it's the place where most of the information is shared uh, in, in a more informal way. So there are very good people on Twitter that you should follow. Uh, and I would recommend uh, you know, some people who are deeply involved in the DeFi space uh, to follow. And you should probably spend an hour in the morning, an hour in at least uh, in the evening to digest uh, and follow those people and see what they're sharing around. That's probably the best place to, to, to get knowledge from. Will, will you send me a short list of those so I can include it in the definitely, in the definitely, posting? Definitely. Do you, I mean, and when you say a few people, I mean, is it three people or is it thirty people? Oh, I would say that you start with three or four people, and then uh, you know you would see that these people come into other people, and the way Twitter works, you know, uh, some people share, some yeah. people uh, talk about other people, they comment on other people's work, and then you would gradually, you know, blow your network to a, a so, decent. Pardon me for saying that. There's an irony here, but here's uh, you know here's a. Uh, Crypto, uh, you know, executive with PhDs in cryptography who is recommending me to go to Twitter for information. This is a different world. I mean, 15 years ago, they would, you know, they would laugh at this idea that there's, there's going to be a medium on the internet oh, without sure. verification where this very serious guy is telling me to go look for information. I mean, it's a very, very different world. And, and this is kind of where the difference is, you know, you know, probably a year ago or two years ago, I would say Reddit was that medium, and in a way, Reddit was a better medium from from my perspective because you could share lengthy thoughts uh, on, on 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 ideas. You could discuss at length uh, about uh, you know whether this idea works or not. Uh, but sadly, uh, the community has moved away from Reddit and to to Twitter in a more um, sort of engaging way because things can be much shorter. It can be to the point. Can be concise. And people are very reactive there. So if you, for example, today, if you go and ask people questions via email, even to researchers, they'll probably react to you <laughs> to you after a day. But if you ping them on Twitter, they'll you'll probably get a much quicker response. So I think we all, even as academics, we are changing our habits uh, and, and going with uh, the medium that's probably the best um, way to... And it's also, it's also easier to share. Because I still remember, for example, when I used to write papers um, uh, four years ago, uh, it took researchers to take at least a year or two years to be able to even see that paper through. 
But right now, because of these researchers on Twitter, they quickly share a tweet about their paper and with a quick summary on what this paper is about. And then it, 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 it reaches an audience that they want. So uh, Twitter has been has been helpful in that sense as well. And so uh, even as a researcher, I would still recommend people to, to but of course, there's a lot of other nasty things that goes on Twitter as well. So you have to be very mindful of, you know, to clean off and be a, stay away from uh, all the negativity that goes on Twitter as well and be able to uh, filter out uh, the right uh, useful content that you'd like. Well, Amrit, I, I thank you for this very thorough conversation and I've learned a lot. I hope my listeners picked up some things. You've been very generous with your time. Um, wish you best of luck with uh, your endeavor and thank, thank you, you so much. Again. Thank you very much, John, for inviting me over. You have just listened to episode 44 of the Futurized podcast with host Tron Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of open finance. Our guest was Amrit Kumar, president and co-founder of Zilliqa, the blockchain platform. In this conversation, we talked about bridging the worlds of legacy finance and blockchain, scaling blockchain protocols with sharding, security trade-offs, holding community and operational funds by staking, emerging startups, and divergent regulatory paths around the world. My takeaway is that the future of open finance is rapidly evolving, but that trust will ebb and flow for a while ahead as decentralized and open finance is spreading across the globe with new players building protocols with increasingly smart contracts, speedy platform solutions, and alternative tokens that provide new benefits that appeal to new groups of users and investors. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption. Thank you.